Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. My name is Carolyn Mumby. I live in a, a really rural area near Lincoln City in the UK. And the most interesting thing near me is Lincoln Cathedral. I was lucky enough to visit Lincoln Cathedral to celebrate the anniversary of the Magna Carta, which was signed in 1215, very long time ago, obviously. And it was a very exciting time. I remember I was lucky enough, even during the raffle, to win a magnum of champagne. So I'll never forget that day. It was a wonderful event. My most fantastic job is uh, I'm very lucky. I enjoy my work. As they say, if you, if, you, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, Edwin. That's yes. what they say, isn't it? And I'm very lucky. At the moment, I'm leading a project which is funded by Innovate UK. And that is obviously all about innovation. We're innovating something which is a huge challenge. It came about because we needed to know whether or not remote working teams were well, I, I don't want to say working well in terms of performance straight away. I want to say, were they happy? Were they working well together? Were they enjoying what they were doing? Because, you know, well-being has become such a very, very key and important part of what we do in HR. And really, that's my domain of experience, HR and uh, and HR law and so forth. That's where I, where I really sort of have my domain expertise. I like to think of myself as a T-shaped person because I'm very interested in lots of things around me. And I think that's really important for alignment across the organization. I have a lot of experience in software development, for example, and compliance, as well as developing people and talent to be the best they can be. And I'm driven by the belief that we can all be happy at work if we create and co-create our own environment. Where do I sign up? <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. Fantastic. You're welcome. Let's, let's do it together. Let's make it happen. Okay. My, my mentor really has changed from period to period in your life, I think. My, I, mm. I do have uh, very fond memories of a colleague of mine who got me started in my own business, Elidex, which I still, um, I'm still CEO of Elidex. Bob Davis, he was fantastic. He was uh, a businessman of the year in our, in our local region. And he, he's one of those chaps, he'd been around the world, seen uh, what it was like to run very big businesses, but he had time for small businesses too. And I really appreciated that. And I, he was a kind person. He had a lovely family. He actually looked quite a lot like Captain Mannering, which you won't know that reference possibly, but the, your English listeners will know. And that's rather amusing because Captain Mannering was from a, a program much loved in the UK called Dad's Army. And he was rather a short, stout man. Um, and, you know, when I went to Bob's funeral, it was even mentioned there because he looked so like him and everyone loved him so much. What was the critical thing that came out of that relationship? What was the nugget that has served you the most? Well, the nugget that has served me the most was Bob had a great sense of humor. And he said to me, he said lots of things to me, which made me curl up laughing. It was so funny. But when he was very ill, <laughs> very sadly, he died of cancer. He was the bravest man I knew. 
and he used to call me. He was remember this this guy's now by now in his 70s, and he'd call me from the hospital and he'd say, I, I'm just calling you from the most expensive hotel in London, which is where he was receiving his cancer treatment, right? <laughs> and he had this iPad, and every time I accepted a call from him, it had the most unfortunate angle, and it was always, because he could never quite get it right, it was always looking up his nose or in his <laughs> ear or something like that. But he was a most lovely person. So, yeah, but I, I remember humour, and he always said, don't forget to have a glass of wine at least once a week, he used to say. In your earlier description of that HR approach to finding, it's almost customer satisfaction, right? As an employee or a worker of an organization, there's needs to be someone that's listening to that customer, that client, and I'm using that word as an employee or a contract laborer, who, whoever's doing the work, right? Whoever's getting paid to make the widgets. So how do you build a culture that allows people to accept and expect that they should be happy? Yeah, it's a good question because a lot of people, you've just put your finger on something that's made me really think actually, because people come to work and sometimes they've had it, all the fun battered out of life at work. And they sort of think, well, I'm just coming here to you know, just literally sort of graft and go home and enjoy myself. The problem is that when you go home, you have less hours awake than you do at work. And if you bring all that baggage home from an unhappy day, it's going to have a big impact on the people around you. And when you're at work, if you're unhappy, that has a big impact on the people around you at work. And it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of disappointment and grind, which is such a waste of life. And then, of course, we take that home and we do tend, unfortunately, I suppose, to uh, rather kind of like take it out on the ones we love because we've had a grotty day and they don't mind listening. That's supposed to be the case. Who's responsible in that model? Who's responsible? Who should take ownership of helping their work culture stay engaged? And I hate to overuse the word happy, but content. Let's say content, right? They're content. Okay, right. Well, I would say everybody needs to take their responsibility in that part. You can't do everything for everybody and nobody can be expected to do it all themselves. So we're all responsible. And that's something that I do try to encourage everybody from C-suite right through middle management, right through to delivery teams to remember, you. what would you like? Envisage what you would like this place to be and how you would like to feel when you're here. Do your best to make that happen and good things will come of it. And and it, it really does. It's it's quite shocking how quickly it happens. You know, you can be in a in a in a team working with a team for two or three weeks and you'll be getting really positive comments back. The trick is to keep it going and to make it sustainable, you've got to give the you've got to give the accountability, you've got to give the power to people who will be there long after you've left the building. And even if you're employed in HR and talent and so forth in a business, you can't be everywhere all the time. And this old idea of, of, of HR being tea and sympathy, you know, they've got this sort of a downgraded view of HR. You're either looking after people and passing the tissues or you're at the top cracking the whip and sacking people in massive <laughs> so-called reorganizations and restructuring. Uh, you know, neither is, is, is adequate. Neither of those is adequate. So what do we do now? I think we have to walk together 
we're shoulder to shoulder, find the solutions together. We've, I think we've all accepted that no one person has the answer. I, I think that paradigm's always existed, but I think there was architecture in place to help support false concepts of how authoritarian organizations will work. Uh, do as I say, you know, that, that's that sort of thing. This framework, and I've heard it in different contexts, right? So I'm an organizational guy. I'm a knowledge guy, knowledge flow, knowledge management. These are all parts of a good organization or can be. They're also parts of a bad organization or non-functional organization too. But So the three main legs of what knowledge management is, is people, processes, and technology. Those are the three hubs. So in your world of HR, in this domain of making a engaging workplace where the culture uh, has some agency to be themselves and to co-create and to not be punished or have fear of if they fail, right? Because some organizations like to punish the people that try. Who owns it? Is it HR? Don't think anybody owns culture, Edwin, because I think culture is what happens when you're out the room. So you can influence culture and you can, as long as you walk the talk, you'll influence it in the way you hope to influence it. If you don't, you'll be judged as inauthentic and you'll suffer the consequences. And how many times have you been in a room in a meeting and you know somebody gets up to leave and a different conversation takes place? And we need to be aware that when we leave the room, a different conversation takes place. Right. So that's so true, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think you're getting to that certain people feel a little less and or more comfortable depending on who's within earshot. Yes, exactly. So when you talk about culture, I think it's the first, it's extremely important that you need to have a, to be aware, of course, of culture. But I don't think it's the first thing you, you say, right, we're going to do something about culture because that emerges, it emerges as a result of how you are perceived and what you do, your deeds. So I would always start with well-being at the moment. I think that's the place to start. And if you say who owns well-being, that would be, well, everybody owns well-being, but who is going to be trying to influence it most? Then that's going to be HR. Yes, certainly. So what are the metrics for that kind of organizational change or adaption? I mean, what does the CEO look at for seeing if they're on the right path, on a path or not on a path? Where do they benchmark? What do they, yeah, what do well, they count? One of the things that has been measuring well-being has been, you know, just how many initiatives are we involved in, in terms of trying to support people, whether they're working remotely or they're suffering some form of isolation, mental health issues, whatever that might be. So in other words, it's been measured by the number of tasks, which is that are being, you know, or outputs that are being actually pursued. Well, that we know if we, if, if we look at OKRs, that, that we really should be looking at outcomes and then drilling down to outputs. Outputs should be serving outcomes. So, and how do you measure your, your outcomes, your key results? How are you measuring those? When I say measuring outcomes, I mean by that, how are you measuring the key results that show you and indicate that you are achieving your outcomes? Can you give me a definitional difference in your language of outcome and output, please? The way that many businesses are coping with well-being and seeking to measure it 
is by saying we will engage in so many activities. We are therefore doing lots of things that are supporting well-being, and therefore that must be good. But how are we measuring whether or not we're succeeding? Does that mean less people have days off? Does it mean that less people are complaining? Does it mean that more people are engaging? What does it mean and how do we measure that? And the project I'm involved with at the moment, which is called Shine, is designed to, and I don't think you even know this bit actually, which is rather wonderful that you've asked me this perfect question for me, <laughs> um, is designed to measure whether or not teams are fit for agile work. So in other words, do they have behavior, are they saying the behavior that is uh, regarded as highly agile? Now, you've already touched on something there, and that is, are there, is this a diverse team? Is it a team which feels psychological safety? Is it speaking, you know, are we getting lots of collaboration here? Or is it being dominated by a few people? This would be one of the things that we would measure, and we measure it in real time. And we do it through online whiteboards, events. So the teams are coming on to shine. They're participating in an online Agile event, which is hosted by a facilitator of their own. And during that time, they're conducting normal work. I mean, you know, they might be doing a, a retrospective or a user journey or whatever. And during that period, Shine, Shine's algorithm assesses whether or not they are behaving and performing in an Agile manner and how Agile they are, if you like. And this is a great indicator of well-being. It, it does other things, of course. It, it shows you other things. It's great for self-improvement, for example. Yeah. The teams can use it, the data for self-improvement. I'm presuming this is a deeper dive and a wider angle than just social network analysis. Oh, yes. Much different to that. Yeah. So we're measuring pillars of agility. So we're measuring things like improvement and we're measuring things like collaboration, productivity, but not in the way that Oh, how many widgets have you output? It's not like that. It's more about whether or not the team is collaborating in a way that is agile in order to plan high value, low effort work would be a good example. We're talking about team competency. We are. Yeah, we are talking about that. Competencies across and within a team. Uh, so it's got to be language-based, time-based. Uh, I'm assuming, uh, in, you, because you need to look at responsiveness, quality of the content provided, you know, all those parts and pieces. That sounds very dynamic. Well, actually, we don't look at it in all those ways, actually. Oh. You might think when you first look at it that you would need to, and I can quite understand why you say that. But when you think about the way a scrum would be held in person within a room, let's say, on site in a traditional way, how does the facilitator get a feel that the team is collaborating and that they are productive are they looking at quality of work how they might not know a lot about the topic they might not know whether that is the appropriate work to have put on the backlog and moved forward to the must-do column or whatever they, they so they're not really assessing quality necessarily in fact often they wouldn't be so they're looking for other things they're looking for movement they're looking to see whether or not people are joining in, how much they're contributing. And we can do all of that on whiteboards remotely. Does the whiteboard actually produce a usable product? All I can think of is you're going to see interactivity and content provided and text and, I don't know, images 
So, so what's the rubric to grade the product? Well, what we do, we have a we have the templates. We develop the templates, and they are geared for the five pillars. Depends what it is that the team want to do. So they might want to do a retrospective, let's say, and they're bringing their own information, their own experiences to that board. And then we have calibrated the board to pick up uh, the type of information we're looking for in relation to the pillars at certain points. And when I say information, I just mean bare data about moving and contribution levels and where they're moving things is very important to us too. So I'll ask you, what's your definition of knowledge management? Well, I think I said to you, I when I when I wrote to you in response to one of your questions was, do we just kid ourselves that we manage knowledge? I don't know. I feel that there is so much information, raw information and data out there, and we have to contextualize it in order to make it useful knowledge. And I see a lot of so-called knowledge management systems out there. And and there's a lot of stuff I just, I can't even face going in there. It's so overwhelming. But if I can somehow find a way, as we feel that we have done with Shine, to put important information or, or potentially useful information into a context for teams to be able to use so that they can use that to understand how they are working and to improve on it by um, discerning and discriminating about which areas they want to concentrate on, then that is knowledge management for me. I am totally in agreement because there's got to be an executable out of it, something that supports the strategic mission or the purpose of whatever the work is to begin with, ideally. I mean, Some organizations don't quite function like that, and they're called bureaucracies. The interesting thing is that what you've said, and I've heard, and it's been my experience too, is that knowledge is almost, and as you were saying that, I I could parallel it with human relations or human management, because probably 40 years ago, somebody said, oh, you can't manage people. Who, what? I think it's a paradigm shift. All we need to do is reframe the view and think that it's more of an action right? It's more of a process and action. If you just collect data and information, it really is useless without synthesis and understanding and practical application. Completely agree with that. Sign me up. Sign me up. (laughs) I certainly will. And sign me up for yours too. It sounds like we've got a lot in common, Edwin. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, my friend. Any other parting comments or words of wisdom you'd like to leave the audience with? Be kind to yourself and those in your immediate circle and everything will take care of itself. As a friend of mine used to say, just let that rough edge drag. (laughs) I like it. Don't get all worked up about it. You know, it'll be there tomorrow. Okay. But thank you. Thank Thank you, you, Edwin. Bye-bye. Good to have met you. Bye-bye. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.